Hi, I'm Carol Cantor, former market researcher for Atari. You're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as usual with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And Mr. Arcade Blogger and author of Missile Commander, Tony Temple. Hello. Though she did not know it at the time, Carol Cantor was the video game industry's very first market researcher. Cantor was hired by an initially skeptical Atari in 1976, ostensibly on a bet with then Vice President Gene Lipkin, applying her formidable market research skills with aplomb and successfully fostering a hitherto underdeveloped synergy between Atari and not only its operator customers, but also its end users. If you like what you hear, please tell some friends and stay up to date by following us on Twitter at the TDE Podcast or visit tdepodcast.net. One final thing. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is proud to be associated with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Though 3,000 miles from TDE Towers, ACAM is very much in our hearts, especially in these strange and uncertain times. As a 501c3 nonprofit, ACAM is largely reliant on fundraising and donations, not only to preserve its archives, but also to keep its extensive collection of classic arcade games in rude health for visitors to enjoy. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Carol, you were already an experienced market researcher when you joined Atari in 1976. Um, but why Atari? Why not? <laughs> I, w I had worked for the Clorox company mm -hmm. doing salad dressing research. Okay. Then I then I worked for Fairchild when those LED, you know, the watches that were red and you pushed a button, the light and the time lit up. Sure. I, when they introduced those and I set up consumer research for that. And then I had read about Atari and said, why not? Um, I believe they were not particularly scientific in their approach to games development. Well, I mean, the engineers were very creative, and if they liked it, then they put it out in the game center to see how it did. Were you a gamer yourself? Uh, not really. I mean, I played games, but as far as coin-op games, I like pinballs and skee-ball. Uh -huh. I didn't really know much about arcade games or anything about the coin-op industry at the time. I learned a lot. <laughs> sure. And the interview process with, I believe, Gene Lipkin, there's an interesting anecdote there. Did was a little challenge involved, was it not? Right. I I met with Gene and I sort of gave him a chat. What well, was a challenge? It was a bet. I just said, give me six months and I'll build a program to try to predict whether games will be good or not. And it'll be quicker and more accurate than how they were doing it at the time. Which was the coin box never lies. That was their motto, wasn't it? Which was a little one dimensional, perhaps. Well, the coin box doesn't lie, but it could be better. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So is it was it is that anecdote about the uh, 
the Pong machine being jammed up with quarters, uh, causing it to... Al Alcorn tells that story all the time. I yeah. think it's a wonderful story. It is. Is it, it, is it true? Do you, or is, or, or... I'm going to say it's probably true, but you'd have to ask him. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, did you, so did you, did you go in with some confidence that you could uh, change things? You know, speaking along the lines of how, you know, their motto was, let's say, the coin box never lies. Did you go in with some confidence that you could um, bring a little nuance to, to that at the time? Well, I had just finished successfully doing it for a whole new product category in watches mm. that had never been done. So I was pretty confident, but I was still very young. So probably a little cocky at the time, but uh, I was pretty confident. I figured that they had a way of testing whether games were going to be good or not, but they really didn't know what the players thought. So you won the bet. You won the bet. I guess so. I stayed there for several years. <laughs> Now, I, I always thought um, that the whole kind of one-way mirror um, uh, market research observation kind of double room setup was, was something from movies until a few years ago when I actually did watch an Atari market research video. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. and it, and it, Now, I also hear from people such as Owen Rubin that some of those, some of those videos, and perhaps not that one, but some of those videos were kind of staged a little. Is that true or, or did they actually take place like that? The video that you're referring to, they did actually after I left. So, right. um, so that may have been staged a little bit, but that's sort of how it worked uh, when we did focus groups. But that was only one method we used. Sure. Um, the focus groups, we did have a one, we went and hired a place and we had a moderator and we had specific questions and we had the kids go and play. I say kids, but sometimes we had older people testing them too. We had them play the game and then we came back and asked questions about it. And But that's more of a qualitative research technique. Um, other techniques we did was we actually went out to game locations, mostly arcades. We had a real re good relationship with Time Zone, which was one of the arcades that we tested games in. And sometimes, occasionally, we go to other types of locations. But we'd actually intercept people who had voluntarily played the test game, ask them what they liked, what they didn't like. When you do it that way, you get more quantitative research. Hi, Carol. Um, so you brought with you market research processes which were previously unheard of at Atari up to that point. I just wonder if you could elaborate and how they were applied out in the field and also internally? Well, these are just classic marketing research techniques. Mm -hmm. We used, we did these in-person interviews. We had questionnaire development is a real big part of it. You have to make sure that the questions you asked aren't biased. Like you say, you always say, um, thinking about the way that the interface worked, is that something you liked or not? Because if you leave off the or not, you're biasing them. You're telling them that you want them to like it. Okay, yep. So there's a lot of technical skills and how to write the questions. Mm -hmm. Then you have to interview enough people so that you have a statistically significant, you can actually analyze it in a statistically significant way. Um, this is one of the things we had the, a lot of the game developers and the engineers come out 
and observe. And that's a whole nother part of it. And it's important for them to observe it. But sometimes you'll have like one very opinionated player and in their brains, they only hear that one player. But when you ask 50 players and you analyze what maybe that one player's opinion was not of the whole group. Yeah, sure. And and would would most of this research take place after a game was written? Or was was there any more sort of generic research that was done out there that you could bring back to the fold in order to give um, the engineers some direction as to what future titles might be popular? I think that maybe that's something that happened after okay. like it was like in 2015 Mike Medlock called me from Microsoft mm-hmm. and he said you were the first person to do player research on games and I went I was <laughs> <laughs> I mean I really had no idea and he invited us to this conference that they had of people who do game research I was there and Colette and Mary we were all there the whole team and we were just blown away we couldn't believe that there were hundreds of people at this conference and they showed some of the new techniques they have they're they're incredible yeah and and um just briefly for everyone's benefit Carol, what what's the difference between qualitative and quantitative research how how do those quantitative research is like when you have you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of input data and you can statistically analyze it. Okay. You can find out there's a statistical significance in how many people preferred this way that it worked versus that way that it worked. Got it. So sometimes you do like a comparative study. Yes. Like they'd have two different versions of a game and you try to find out which one they like better. Whereas qualitative research is to take a consensus of opinions. I wonder um, just on a, you know, a typical day, at Atari, what what challenges were thrown up by the audience you were talking to? So, you know, I guess there I'm, I'm alluding to the fact that your typical gamer in the mid-70s um, would have been presumably a, a male teenager. And I just wondered how difficult that was to actually extrapolate decent data from. Teenagers, for the most part, were happy to talk to us about their play experience. When we first approached them, they'd, you know, give us this shrug like teenagers do you know maybe oh (laughs) yeah but once you start asking them specific questions uh they really get into it okay they it was it was their opportunity to tell us you know that the steering on the driving game was not responsive enough or that they felt the timing on the shooting game wasn't was too slow they felt like they were actually helping us make the game better yep and and to that point, so how exactly did these methods you used and the information you were able to gather, what what was done with that information at that point and how did it add to the development process of, of Atari's games? Well, as I mentioned, the, the engineers were there often. Mm-hmm. In fact, Gene Lipkin came a lot. Frank came a lot. They all wanted to watch the process because they wanted to hear themselves what these kids were saying. And so it was really good. We'd, ta- we'd bring it back and analyze all these surveys that we had, all the input that we had, and write a report. And the report would go to management and to the engineer team, the development team. And we'd talk about it. I mean, oftentimes we just sort of it's wasn't very formal it was pretty informal Mm -hmm. once we made the report how we they'd ask us questions and we'd answer you know we'd say what our what the opinions were from the field yeah did that ever create any um sort of loggerhead moments when you were trying to sort of give that feedback internally i just i i just wonder if the engineers were rather sort of precious about their creations at any time of course 
they were with their babies, but uh, mm-hmm. sometimes they didn't agree with the findings, but you know, they had to have their own debates of whether to do something about it or not. Like if there was some flaw that the kids complained about, yep. maybe, maybe it really wasn't a flaw. Maybe they were complaining about it because it was a little too hard, but the, their, you know, their motto was easy to learn, hard to master. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was part of the hard to master and so so the objective isn't to have a kid be able to win the game immediately. The objective is to get them hooked on it so that they'll keep trying and trying and trying to, to reach a particular goal. Clearly, after a period of time, Carol, your um, input into the creative process through market research was impressing Atari so much that um, around 1977, further investment was ploughed into the research field. I don't know how impressed they were, but they there were more and more games, and so and they liked it. They liked bragging about it as much as they liked the response. They liked to be able to tell the distributors and the operators, "We researched this," you know, okay, that kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, that was at the time when we brought on Colette, who was my sidekick, and. And she was Some she was a Colette wheel. Wow. Wow. Okay. And uh, she was amazing. She really was brilliant. She still is. Okay. We're still we're still good friends. And then and then Mary Fujihara came in uh-huh. and Linda Adam. Mm-hmm. And so we had a really nice team. And did their roles differ from yours? Would did you head up the team? I headed up the team and they they sort of grew into it and they took over most of the research part of it because I got sort of roped into doing more of the general marketing as well. So we we still worked as a team the whole time. Another sort of byproduct of, of your research, Carol, is um, arguably you were responsible for more prototype arcade machines than ever before. So as changes were made to um, gameplay and arcade cabinets as a result of your feedback, many machines were sort of shunted to one side and, and became um, what are now known as prototypes, which are highly collectible by idiots like me these days. <laughs> I really didn't even know anything about that. Um, you know, I just wonder how how ultimately satisfying it was to see the, the sort of physical and software changes to Atari's products as a result of your work. Well... It's always nice when you know that that you've helped make something a better product. Mm-hmm. That the enhancements that were made based on research feedback were more enhancements than, than like major shifts. If the game had a good potential from the beginning, then the player input would verify that it was good, but that there were characteristics that could be adjusted to make it better. Yeah. Um you touched on it earlier, Carol, but you you started to get sort of sidelined and sort of pushed into other projects. Um, one of the things you were responsible for was Atari's internal coin connection bulletin, um, which was sent out on a regular basis to operators and distributors. How did that come about? And why, why was that line of communication with Atari's customers so important? Well, as I mentioned, they like to brag about the fact they did research, <laughs> but they like to brag about, about a lot of things. And so the newsletter, I think the first one came out in the end of 76. And it was basically part of the marketing plan. It was a way of of communicating with distributors and game operators about, you know, what games were coming up, what are the opportunities for them, how to promote the games, because by that time I was starting to work more on the promotion side as well. Yes. And it included all kinds of information about about the games and about profiles of Atari people, technical tips, the research findings. So so it was fun. Yeah. It was a really fun thing to do. And George Opperman, of course, with his artwork. 
made it beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, that's, I really wanted to, to, sorry to jump in there, Tony and Carol, mm. but that's a nice segue actually into into something I wanted to ask about because um, you are, of course, Carol, um, I believe friends with Evelyn Seto and she yeah. worked alongside George Opperman, who who sadly passed away in, I believe, 1984. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, about your interaction with, with both Evelyn and George. Um, well, it's, it was, they had a whole team too. There was Bob Flamati, mm. there was uh, uh, Jim Arita. So they had quite a graphics team in the coin-op division. Mm. Uh, George was the head of that department, but he was so talented. Oh, amazing. Oh, he was. He was the, you know, he was, he, he was quite the Renaissance man. Design, graphic design, illustration, art direction, the whole gamut. I still use his, uh, his style as a, now that I do graphic artwork too. Right. I use his style as, as an inspiration for a lot of the things I try to do. Did your did your research work influence did George call on you, for example? Um, did he call on your services um, in the service of his actual design work? Or were you strictly confined just to the gameplay side of things? That's an interesting question. I mean we work closely with the art department, but they really were their own group. Mm. They the I think the only time that I remember that actually the the design of the cabinet or the graphics made a difference was when they started doing sit-down games like Fire Truck. And, Which and Evelyn, yeah, Evelyn Evelyn designed the Fire Truck graphics, didn't she, I, I believe? She's really an amazing artist. Yeah, she and she, well, she, she paints now, doesn't she? I saw, I had a quick look at her website. She does all kinds of things, but she's actually right now, I think she's writing a book about her family. Carol, we, we've spoken mainly about your involvement with consumer research. I wondered if that ever extended into sort of B2B research where you would um, try to establish the needs of distributors who, let, let's face it, were Atari's sort of immediate customer. Right. Oh, actually, I came across a couple of the surveys that we did for of operators and distributors. Okay. And every time we went to a trade show... Uh, from a certain point forward, we had surveys in the booth that we did with the distributors and the operators. But the objective was to evaluate the profile of the game operator business and determine the market size and overall collection data. Okay. It, and then we did the same time we did a national player survey to try to get a better picture for the market. It's surprising to look back at it. Only about 10 to 15% of the players of coin-up games played more than once a week. And the average player at that time spent $2.50 each time they played. <laughs> and the oper the operators were mainly, you know, vending operators that had about 30% of their route were video games. Yep. And most of them were in bars and taverns rather than arcades. So arcades really didn't make up the, the majority of where the games ended up. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that I, I I wonder at what point um, the um, sort of less obvious markets came to Atari's attention. So I'm thinking here about some of the cabaret designs, which which were probably came in just after your time. But it became very clear that there, there were much bigger markets for Atari to go at than just the arcade owner. Well, I'm pretty sure that the very first games went to bars. Okay, yeah. So there would have been bars. There would have been um, sort of Seven Elevens, right? Restaurants, doctors surgeries, airports. Did that come about as a result of um, market research or was it just a sort of light bulb moment, do you, do you think? Well, I think that that came about primarily because the operators who bought the games already had vending machines 
jukeboxes and cigarettes. That was their main business before the the advent of the video games. Right. So that's really the arcades. The arcade business came more from the like the people who attended IAAPA, okay, which was the the amusement park world. Yes. And game centers were kind of an offshoot from that, like making it a mini amusement park. But the mainstay of the business was still from the vending operators, from the the AMOA crowd. Yeah, we often talk about arcades of the late 70s and early 80s, whereas in fact, these things were found everywhere. I was surprised when I looked at that research at, at what the percentage was. Carol, you joined Atari in 1976, which was just at the point that Warner Brothers was starting the process of buying out Atari. I, because you were there at the time, did you see a big change in the company once they had taken over? Uh, it was certainly a change. I was I listened to one of the other uh, interviews that you did, and mm-hmm. and it was very different from the way I heard it. <laughs> um, but at first, I actually benefited from the Warner connection. Okay, uh, they sent me because I was doing marketing and public relations also, which they didn't know. I mean, they didn't do PR very much. Um, at least they they did it, but they didn't know what it was. <laughs> So uh, they actually sent me to New York and I worked with their uh, marketing and public relations team for, I guess it was several weeks, maybe even over a month. And then I brought all I learned back to Atari. And so it helped me personally. I still use what I learned from them. So from that standpoint, it was great. Okay. You met, I was interested earlier on, you mentioned that before you came to Atari, you'd done some market research around salad dressing. I just wondered, is testing anything? any product pretty much the same in that you get someone to taste it or when it comes with games you get someone to play it and then you just ask them whether they liked it or not or, or is it more nuanced than that it's definitely more nuanced like i was explaining about questionnaires and how you have to make sure that the questions aren't biased and then the analysis side you have to really look into the statistics but in today's game research i mean they're even measuring you know they're taking pictures of people playing the games and watching their hand motions Mm -hmm. so it's evolved a lot and become a lot more complicated from when i started let's let's go back we we talked to warren davis who um worked at gottlieb he he wrote cuba and he once said because he was involved with these market research ones and he said it wasn't so much what the players said but it was definitely watching them as they played. That's what told you the most. Do you, do you agree with that, Carol? I think that, that there's kind of a melding of, of observation. And that's why we wanted the engineers and the design team to be out there watching them play. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were when you were um, looking at player responses to games, I wondered, um, did you make a big effort to try and sort of get a cross section of players? You know, old, young, different genders, maybe different ethnic backgrounds. Was that something that you thought was important? We did uh, try to get demographic differences. At that time, we were kind of limited by how many places we could actually put a game. And so places where we where we tested attracted certain demographics. Okay. And so we we had to make some assumptions, but we did try to, to diversify where we put the games and stuff. So our research was a little bit biased by the locations that we had. Okay. But can I ask a bit more then? I mean, did you start noticing trends kind of that a certain demographic group would like a certain style of game or or maybe you know a certain age or gender did you start noticing trends like that i wish we had we did we (laughs) did try to find out why certain girls like games uh and what kinds of games they liked that were different from the ones that the typical teenage boys liked um 
And we did get some data on that. But boy, it would have been nice to be able to do, you know, studies in different geographic areas that, that attract different, a more diverse demography. Yeah. The thing about gender there is uh, is because there was always this idea that, um, you know, certain games will appeal to girls. Uh, you know, Centipede because of the colours. Pac-Man because it involves eating. I mean, there seem to be very <laughs> stereotypical assumptions about the differences between girls and boys. I'm not so sure about different colours, but I'm, they tried a lot of things. And I know that shooting games were really targeted to the male market. Mm-hmm. But just overall, I think that, that girls didn't have as much opportunity to play. I mean, I think if you went to the computer games of today that people play at home and you did the same kind of research, you might find some totally different demographic results. Another aspect of Atari in the 70s that we're all big fans of is the is the arcade flyers that they used to produce to sell their games. I just want, I I mean, I collect them, so I'm really interested in them. I've but, got a whole folder full of them. <laughs> we'll have to do some swaps, Carol. Okay. I'm just, um, <laughs> I donated most of mine to uh, the Strong Museum in Rochester. Oh, yes. Yes. A, a wonderful place. Um, let's talk about that then. I, if you look at the, the flyers from the early 70s, they kind of show um, just people playing games, sort of human beings playing the games. And then sort of through the 70s, into the late 70s, they, they become more abstract. Um, do you think that was part of a sort of more sophisticated view, kind of like encouraging people to buy into a brand? What, what's your take on that? Well, I think that they learned that if you show people playing a game, you're suggesting the type of person who might like to play it. If you don't show players playing and you just feature the graphics, Graphics, it opens it up to a bigger market. Ah, that's it. So <laughs> some of those early early flyers, they, they do have women on them, but they're always in sort of passive positions, kind of watching young men play. Did you, or, or most infamously, the gotcha one, which shows a, a woman being chased by a man. Did, did you ever feel uncomfortable with some of these depictions? I think that in the 70s, we wouldn't have thought a thing about it. I think today, looking back, we think it was inappropriate. Um, can I ask you a little bit about Atari? So you were there from 76 and stayed right up to the end of the 70s. I think 79 is when you left. Um, we couldn't help notice that in 2018, the Game Developers Conference was was going to give the Pioneer Award to Nolan Bushnell and then, and then withdrew it. Um, do you think that was fair, Carol? Well, I I don't think they should have. Personally, I don't think they should have kept the award from him. Okay. I, I mean, I just didn't experience anything that would warrant that okay so you know these, these kind of allegations that some people did on twitter you just see those what as as, as baseless uh, in your view it wasn't my experience I, in the 70s we did strange things but he didn't do <laughs> but he didn't do anything inappropriate that i know of so okay. and i just I can't, you know, I didn't have that experience and I don't know of anybody who had that experience. So no, fair enough. You, you've gone on record saying the secret of Nolan's success was surrounding himself with, with talented people. I presume that that talent, he didn't look at it in terms of, of gender at all then. It was just whether you were good at the job. There were a lot of women there. And I worked with a lot of women. Our marketing team was all women. And even in the engineering side, there were quite a few women. And there were at least two women in the art team. So 
there were a lot of women there. Yeah, we understand in terms of sort of percentage of uh, ratio of employees that, you know, around the time you were there, around 30% of all employees were female, which sounds a lot better than most tech companies are, you know, in 2021. Well, there was a clearly a difference in attitude from the previous places that I'd worked. Right. Okay. So you had experienced some negative things in previous places, but not so much at all. That's true. You know, this is one of those things. And I think that like my work was not valued at other companies as much. Mm-hmm. Although I will say that when I was at Clorox, they valued what I did because they kept, even after they laid me off, they kept me on for a month to finish the project I was working on. So, yeah, that's a good, so good I, I carried on paying you. That's normally a good sign. I guess they valued my work there, but I found it at some of the other places I'd worked even before those, um, I think that I probably had it easier than a lot of other women, though, so I don't want to dwell on it. I I was very lucky. I had a very good career path. Certainly. Um, you've talked about how many other women were at Atari. I just wondered whether oh, the contribution of women at Atari, I wonder whether it's been sort of, it's been distracted from because of this obsession with asking about kind of a party culture. Do you think that's, you know, that obsession with asking about kind of, hey, what were the parties like? Do you think that perhaps detracts from from what women were actually achieving at the company? Well, the, the parties were fun for the women too. Okay. Well, I mean, it was, it was a work hard, play hard environment. We, but we didn't look down on anybody who opted out of the parties. So it was sort of a, you know, the parties and pranks. Atari was notorious for them, but I don't think any of the pranks were necessarily sexist. They were not destructive. They actually added to the creativity of the group. Yeah. And like you just said that, you know, women are allowed to have as much fun uh, as men. And I wonder whether the people look back on those times and assume women were victims. You certainly don't seem to be portraying women as victims at all at Atari. I I personally never experienced it and I've never heard from any of my personal friends who are still my Atari friends of any experiences like that. You uh, left Atari just at the point when the company was really taking off with such coin-op hits as Asteroids. I wondered if you regretted leaving Atari at that point. Well, it was time for me to start something of my own. And so it was sort of a draw. But I kind of made the compromise because Atari became my client. Ah. And I continued to work with Atari. And I worked with a lot of other people in the... I loved the industry. I still love the industry. And so the people that I worked with at Business Builders were, you know, Atari was my, my, started as my biggest client. And then I worked for Cinematronics, SNK, Intrepid Games, Namco. Wow. I worked on a lot of their projects. I worked with a lot of other manufacturers and distributors in the industry and even operators. Okay. Was this again doing player research for Atari, but a, a range of clients then? No, more more in the marketing side. Was it just work? Was it just, I mean, that, I suppose we look back at these uh, things so fondly because they sort of defined our childhood. Was it was it just another job for you or, or could you see the, the kind of cultural significance of this boom in video games? I think anything you do professionally, it's it's work. And it's a community. We built a, a really lovely community at Atari. Um, but you don't see the significance of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. It's only in hindsight that you realize what it might have been. You've not been approached by any salad dressing podcasts to talk about you. <laughs> Let's talk about you, your, your, your time back at Clorox, Carol. Hidden Valley Ranch is still around. Yeah, salad days. 
<laughs> right. You promised you wouldn't. I went there. <laughs> nice one, Rich. <laughs> anyway, um, there's perhaps other questions. Richie, did you want to pick anything up? Or well, not, not, not particularly for the sake of it. The only thing I did want to ask, Carol, was um, I wanted to ask you more about business builders. What's the difference between business builders back then and business builders now, how how has your company grown and, and what are you involved with at the moment? Well, right now, I only have one game company that does anything with me, and that's Musée Mécanique. And I just adore Dan. And his father was a, was a client and his father was an amazing innovator and collector of games. And I would like to pitch him. But as far as my business overall now, I do a lot more work with a lot of different industries, big accounts in the biotech world. I do jackets for employees in the healthcare industry. I I get exposed to a lot of different businesses, Mm. some high tech, some low tech. We have done quite a few masks and a lot of, and we're focusing on, you know, work at home type things. Yeah. And I mean, since people weren't able to have their events this year, they're trying to find, you know, nice gifts to send to their employees. That kind of fulfillment we never had to do before. And and Carol, go back a little bit. You mentioned Dan. Um, tell us more. Tell us more about that place and tell us more about Dan. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested. Um, Ed Zelensky was a collector in San Francisco. He was a collector of coin-operated amusement devices of all types. Dan's father, correct? Dan's father. And I had a wonderful, wonderful time one day. I went to visit him at his home and saw his private collection at his home. Mm. And then we went to Musée Mécanique, which at that time was at the Cliff House area, right below, underneath the Cliff House. But then more recently, uh, since Ed passed away, Dan took over. Dan's his son. And he's quite a character. He's really a lovely person. And he takes care of the collection. And they moved to Pier. 39, I believe. Um, and he has a huge collection of antique games and amusements. There's more than just the games. There's music players and things from long, long time ago. And so it's a beautiful collection and I highly recommend it. And Dan still talks to me and he just recently reordered their lapel pins and they do this, um, this book of photos from their photo booth which is kind of fun. I'm just looking at some photographs and it looks absolutely amazing. It has to be said. I mean, we do on this podcast, we obviously focus on what we, we or what's colloquially known as the golden era. But, you know, these these guys, clearly it's back to turn of a century stuff. Any, anything you popped a coin into looks amazing. Exactly. I mean, and before I met him, I think I didn't know anything about that whole world. It was an eye opener. I feel a road trip coming on, gentlemen. Oh yes. Yeah, I want to. I, I like those. Um, I, li- I love those fortune teller machines. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Atari at one point tried to do a more modern fortune teller using a holograph. Okay. I remember going to to the photo shoot for the hologram. That was a. I don't know whatever happened to that game. I mean, it wasn't a game. It was a fortune telling machine. That's interesting. Were you were you the model for the fortune teller, Carol? Absolutely not. They. I thought your perception of the way the market was going would make you the perfect uh, model for that game <laughs> uh, no if you saw the person that was used you, you know why that well, uh, <laughs> that's actually quite interesting carol because i've seen atari jukeboxes before which are which have an amazing uh, aesthetic to them so they did they did actually want to or try to branch out into other coin operated um machines 
rather than just the arcade games and the video games. I think it was sort of a short phase. Um, mm. But the this it was interesting going on that photo shoot because I didn't have any idea how a hologram was photographed. Mm. And it was kind of done on a turntable. It was kind of interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, they had a photo booth. That was one of their products for a short time. Okay. So yeah, they got into a few odds and ends things other than games. But short-lived, short-lived. I think so. I don't think it... You know, that was about the same time when they were trying to do kits for operators to plug in new games to their old cabinets right okay that was a whole nother more the more the ballet sante route by the sounds of it Cal, can i ask you can i ask through th- throughout your career at atari throughout your tenure at atari and, and perhaps beyond did you did you have a particular favorite game did you have a personal favorite or did you did you gravitate to anything in particular breakout breakout okay good game it was it was there when i first started and i played it for years did you were you you ever tempted to um find yourself your own your own breakout cabinet and bring it home one day or has it never really been your thing um no i really didn't i i have some back glasses from pinball games in the house Mm -hmm. i had the superman that was a whole nother thing that was tons of fun i worked on the superman project which was that was a warner connection thing okay and i learned a lot about licensing at that point because i didn't know anything about licensing before that and we got to go to the premiere of the movie that was fun and uh but Colette was the one that had she she had a foosball table that she had in her house and we played went to her house to play foosball all the time. I saw the women of Atari um, get together photographs from 2018. You guys you guys stay in touch and you you know you see each other from time to time, which which I think is amazing. It's lovely. We do. We we even had a Zoom meeting not too long ago. Yeah, it's a great group of people. These women have gone on their careers and done extremely well i'm very proud of them yeah yeah you can tell carol thank you so much for um taking the time to be interviewed it's um we've got some real gold and um i just want to express my thanks thank you and and for me i'm 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 quite struck by your um uh, modesty carol and your sort of bemusement at people's interest at your time at Atari. But, you know, um, just thanks for digging into your memory and, uh, you know, sharing some of those stories with us. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Well, it's been fun going back and looking at some of the old pictures and the brochures and stuff. Trip down memory lane. Thank you for giving us uh, such insights into a part of the of the coin-op business that we've, we've not touched on on the podcast before. And we actually managed to get through the entire show without mentioning hot tubs either. So I hope you're proud of us. <laughs> It was the 70s. (laughs) You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
It was a poem that I wrote to or either to or about the people I worked with at Atari. Oh my word. We have never <laughs> we have never had poetry on the podcast. So come on, Carol. I don't I think it's it's pretty rotten. <laughs> no, we'll be the judge of that. I'm not gonna win any poet laureates here. Let's see. It was an ode to Atari. Lots of fun and play the Atari way. Hard work and frustration too, but there's always been a terrific crew. With Lipkin being the man at top and Baloo right behind it, it goes nonstop. One never quite knows just what to expect, but it makes it better as I reflect. Don and Tom make a zany pair on the road together, distributors beware. Angelo's team always handles the chaos, chalk dust flies, the games go out. By the way, who is their boss? Laura, take care of Baloo's temperament. Handle him well with the new regiment. Colette, keep on planning and organizing this group that often needs civilizing. Linda, don't tab questionnaires in your dreams. You work really hard. Don't go to extremes. Mary, your wisdom and wit will go on. With all your comebacks, you'll always be on one up on Don. Sue is always a stabilizing force, except when Shane arrives, of course, that Shane breaks. Uh, Lynn may be new, but she'll soon be apart. Doreen and Jan will give her a start. Mireille, from your closet, they'll still hear you yell. An obstinate customer, keep giving them hell. With Ruth's warm heart, she'll always stay calm. That's why she makes such a terrific mom. Field service stands strong with Russ, Bob, and Big Mac. Watch out when these three are on the attack. And the engineers are really good sports, even when they disagree with the marketing reports. Never forget Nolan, that game pioneer, then on to pizza and rats. What's up for next year? The days at Atari, I'll never forget. Some of my best crazy people I've ever met. They will keep the place going no matter what state. And that's what makes Atari so great. Mm -hmm.